Hello and welcome to the How To Academy podcast, the bi-weekly show from London's home of big thinking. I'm Vas Christodoulou. I remember being told over and over again as a child that I should be less sensitive. I expect many of you do as well. But what if being sensitive was a superpower? Our guest on this episode, Andre Solo, is a researcher and editor-in-chief of the website Highly Sensitive Refuge. He's the co-author of a number of scientific papers on the subject and of a new book, Sensitive, The Power of a Thoughtful Mind in an Overwhelming World. He joined the writer and broadcaster Julia Wheeler to tell us more. Hello everyone and welcome to this conversation about how to thrive as a sensitive person in an overwhelming world. My name is Julia Wheeler, I'm a writer and I chair events at science and literature festivals in the UK and overseas and it is my huge pleasure to introduce and welcome tonight's guest who is a co-author of the book Sensitive. Andre Solo is the co-founder and editor-in-chief of the website Sensitive Refuge. It's the largest website of its kind dedicated to sensitive people and a sensitive person himself, Andre has come to recognise the potential of that trait as the superpower that it can be. Andre, welcome to the How To Academy. Thank you for having me, Julia. I'm excited to be here. Well, we're excited to have you here and to and to delve into this book that we can see behind you, Sensitive. So I've said that you are, I'm not going to say self-confessed um, sensitive person, because we'll perhaps get onto that side of things, but you are a sensitive person. And I wonder whether you could give us an idea of how that exhibited itself as you grew up and also when you came to realise that this was actually something to be celebrated. So I'm a sensitive person. I've always been sensitive. Generally speaking, if you're sensitive, it's mostly genetic. So you're going to be that way your whole life. Um, But as a kid, I did not know that that's what I was. I didn't have that word for it. And I remember when I started kindergarten, which I guess is kind of like nursery school, the classroom was fine. I did fine in class learning my ABCs and things like that. But once we were out on the playground for recess, things changed. Suddenly there were hundreds of kids running every direction, screaming, yelling, laughing, sometimes fighting, right? And it was just overstimulating. And I would get overloaded. And I didn't know why. I didn't know it was overstimulation, but I knew I needed to get out of there. So I would actually run away and hide. And I looked for anywhere quiet I could go. The only quiet place I could find was actually a storm sewer opening uh, near the edge of the school grounds. So I would get in there, nice and quiet, soothing, and just relax until recess was over. And then I'd hear the bell and run back to school like this, no problem. Well, that went on for a little while until the teachers found out where I was going. And then it was a big problem. Apparently, that's not where they want students to be during recess. Who <laughs> Yeah, right. So they called my parents. I got quite the talking to. And everybody was really alarmed. Like, why are you doing this? You know, it seemed like this huge problem. And I didn't understand why. It's like, well, it's nice and quiet. And I came back. That was the first time I realized that there's something really different uh, about the way I experienced the world. And, you know, we didn't have the word sensitive. That wasn't explained to me. So, and it had caused a big problem. So I began to get the idea that there was something wrong with me. And it wasn't until I was an adult that I began to dig into the research behind sensitivity and realized, wow, this is a trait that's uh, not only is it normal, not only is there nothing wrong with me, I'm just sensitive, but this is a trait that's linked to a lot of powerful strengths. This is actually a good thing. And that was a life-changing moment for me. So in terms of characteristics, you've described some of the things that affected you, but there are lots more. So if people are wondering whether they come under this heading sensitive, what would you say the main things to look out for are? We'll start by just talking about what it means to be sensitive, right? Because I think this word has a lot of meanings. And when we hear the word sensitive, we often think of being weak or fragile or maybe uh, overreacting to things or out of control emotions, right? And that's just not what being sensitive means. So as a personality trait, being sensitive means you take in more information from the world around you and you do more with it. What I mean by that is that sensitive people are actually wired at a brain level to process all information more deeply. Uh, So they put more time, more attention, more mental resources into processing information, thinking about it, ruminating on it, sitting with it, and starting to notice maybe details and connections that other people might not have noticed. 
And that comes out in a lot of ways, right? Because there's so many different kinds of information that the brain gets. So obviously there's sensory information you're getting through your five senses. And so a sensitive person might be the person who notices that like scratchy texture of a fabric that bothers them but doesn't bother anyone else. Or they might notice that delicate note of apricot in a nice white wine that no one else can detect. And you have this sensory kind of side of sensitivity. But information to the brain can also be emotional. And in a lot of ways, that's the most important information we have. Uh, so we're always bringing in, you know, social cues, emotional cues from the people around us. And sensitive people go deeper with that, too. So if you're a highly sensitive person, you might be the only one who notices that little, like, hint of a smile that flashes across someone's face before they manage to hide it. And you might have this kind of sixth sense about, like, wait, that person's lying. Or, wait, I don't think that person means what everyone else thinks they mean. Those are both signs of being sensitive. And those two sides of sensitivity, the physical and the emotional, those are so closely related that in one study, we actually see that if you take uh, Tylenol, which is like paracetamol, if you take that to numb a headache, you'll actually score lower on an empathy test until that medication wears off. So these two things go tightly together, the emotional and the physical sensitivity, and also just deep thinking. Because if you're doing all that extra processing, you tend to make connections that other people don't make between ideas. And so sensitive people will tend to have powerful gifts. They'll tend to be very creative. They'll tend to have a high sense of empathy and compassion because of that connection to other people's emotions. And they tend to be very aware of their physical surroundings. And those are things you can see in yourself. You might also notice that you are very aesthetically sensitive. So sensitive people are often uh, very uh, moved by artwork and beauty and meaning. Uh, if you're the kind of person who might cry during a movie or cry during a piece of music, or you just feel emotionally moved when you look at a piece of artwork, those might be signs that you're a sensitive person as well. Uh, and uh, there is a, a test you can take. We have that on our website, Sensitive Refuge. But you can kind of see those signs in your own life or in other people around you and get a pretty good idea. You talk in the book actually about another word for sensitivity being responsiveness, that people, that sensitive people respond more, which is so much more positive in the general use of the language, isn't it? Right. So, you know, when we talk about sensitivity, it's, it's, uh, it's just like any other healthy trait. It's a continuum right? Everyone is sensitive to some degree. We all have a sensitive side, but some people are more sensitive than others. So what we see is most people are in the middle of the continuum. They're average. Uh, some people are at the lower end. And some people, about 30% of all people score high for sensitivity. And that's the same numbers for both men and women. And as far as we know, all people of all genders. So nature kind of made this choice, right? Natural selection kind of like made this experiment of Every creature in the universe has to take in information from its environment and respond to it somehow. Even plants do that. They detect, you know, there's a drought going on, so I'll, I'll notice that and I'll change the way I'm using my water. But the question is, what if you turned up the dial, where some creatures do that more? They, they filter out less information, they take more time with it, and they process it more before responding to it more strongly. And other creatures do that less. And nature tried this experiment, and it turns out that that higher sensitivity can be very, very useful. And that's why it's 30% of the population, not like 1% or 2%, uh, because it really pays off. It's also why we see sensitivity in other species, and not just primates, which kind of makes sense, they're closely related to us, but also things like fish and bugs uh, will have individuals who are more sensitive or less sensitive in the same way. So it's this ability to take things in and respond to the environment that gives you all these traits of being a sensitive person. You say in the book that your readership is, is threefold. It's those people who know already that they're sensitive. People have to say like me who are thinking, oh, well, maybe, yeah, OK, that makes sense. But also the, the third group is treasured guests. Now, tell us what you mean by these treasured guests. Right. Treasured guests are the people who uh, maybe you have a sensitive person in your life, right? If it's one in three people out there are highly sensitive, well, if it's not you, it's going to be your spouse or one of your parents or one of your children or one of your best friends or someone you work with. Uh, you certainly have sensitive people in your life. And by treasured guest, we mean there's this stigma around being sensitive. There's this cultural perception that sensitive is a bad thing. You should either get rid of it or hide it, just kind of make it go away, when in reality it's a trait that's linked to giftedness. 
And so we we want, of course, the book to serve people who are sensitive and be a journey of self-discovery and help empower you to embrace your sensitivity and use those gifts. But it's also important for us that the people who are not sensitive start to uh, get a hold of this book. And what we've often seen is that uh, people who are highly sensitive will ask people in their life. They might send them a, an article from our website. They might give them a copy of our book. But they'll say, hey, could you read this? This really understands me. And they're looking for that uh, sense of like the people around them starting to see the strengths or at least see and accept who they are. Uh, yeah, and, and to work with them in, in a different way. So let's, you mentioned empathy. This is a gift of responsiveness, of, of uh, sensitivity. Talk to us about how it's a gift, but then we'll move on to actually sometimes how it can be a negative thing for the people who are so empathetic. So let's talk about the positive to start with. Yeah, so empathy is a topic that I think sounds really kind of soft to a lot of people. You know, it's this sort of emotional, fuzzy topic. Um, in reality, there's a lot of hard science to empathy. Empathy is an important human characteristic. So this is really what allows us to be a social species and to work together in groups and cooperate and form societies. And it's why we are able to do that. And at the brain level, I think we've all probably heard of mirror neurons, right? We have these neurons that allow us to kind of mirror the emotions of other people and sort of get a sense of what that person must be feeling. But what's interesting is mirror neurons did not start off as an emotional system. They started off as motor neurons, the type of neuron that helps you move your, your physical body. And they started off that way because one of the most essential things for any creature to do, uh, even before it develops a high level of emotionality and intelligence and things like that, is just to be able to copy movements, right? So if you do a dance move, I probably will do a terrible job of imitating it, but I can kind of get the idea and move my arms the same way you just moved your arms, right? Um, it's why when you face the instructor in a yoga class or a fitness class, you know, they, they do the same movements they want you to do and you copy it. That's because those motor neurons say, oh, they raised this hand, I'll raise that hand. It was only over time, most likely, that uh, species began to sort of uh, use these, these motor neurons to mirror other things, right? So if, if somebody smiles a certain way, that's a physical set of movements. And my motor neurons know how to, my mirror neurons, I should say, know how to move my face to do the same thing. And we know what it feels like. We know what I would be thinking and feeling if I smiled that same way. And so we start to use our mirror neurons as a sort of a simulator. And so we're very powerful simulators of social situations. In your head, you have this computer that can run a simulation of, well, if that person said this and they looked this way at me, they must be thinking and feeling this. And it's a powerful simulation. But just like these other things we've talked about, some people do it to a greater extent than others. Sensitive people, we know, self-report higher levels of empathy. We know they perform higher in empathy tests. And we know that at a brain level, they have greater activation in areas of the brain related to empathy, including the mirror neuron system network, I should say. And that can also then be exhausting for somebody who is super empathetic. So one of the things that you talk about in the book is, is turning that into a positive and the link between empathy and compassion, where we're actually responding, doing something. We have agency, if you like. Exactly. Yeah, absolutely. So uh, empathy can become this real source of pain. I've heard a lot of sensitive people describe it as a curse. And if you think about it, when you're turning that mirror neuron network up that much, you're running that simulation that well, it's not just that you get a hunch like, oh, well, that person must feel this way. You start to feel it yourself because you're running the same simulation in your head. And so sensitive people, not all, but many sensitive people will have the experience of absorbing emotions from other people. So if someone else feels sad, you start to feel deeply sad. And I don't just mean like, oh, I'm sorry, your puppy died. It's like you might start crying for someone else's loss. And that can happen even with strangers, even when you don't know what's wrong. A lot of sensitive people will just have the experience of someone around them was stressed out. Maybe it wasn't even someone they were talking to or interacting with, but they just start to get really stressed. And it's, uh, you know, if you've ever heard someone call themselves an empath, um, that's probably what's really going on. If you looked at it scientifically is they probably are a highly sensitive person and this is what's happening uh, inside their brain. So it can be the source of pain. It's not fun to go around the world absorbing all of the stress and anger because it's kind of a stressed out and angry world, right? And so empathy, even though it's this forcing and bring people together, we also see that in individual interactions, it often makes people pull apart. And this is why when someone else has something bad going on in their life, 
you know, you, you start to easily slip into saying things that are kind of these like pat, like cheerful sayings like, oh, I'm sure it'll all work out because that gets you out of the conversation. We can stop doing this uncomfortable thing. And I don't have to feel bad right now. Right. That's where that toxic cheerfulness comes from. So empathy, it, it tends to increase your heart rate, it increases the rate of your breathing, it increases the tension you're feeling in your body. It can be unpleasant when you're doing empathy with someone who has a negative emotion, and it can cause people to start to pull away from each other. So in the book, we recommend making a small change, and that change is to start practicing compassion. Now, I personally, I always thought of compassion and, and empathy as meaning basically the same thing. Researchers do not use it to mean that. Uh, when you do compassion, it means you're reaching out and asking questions. It means you're starting to try to understand the other person's perspective. Maybe you already feel what they're feeling, that's your empathy, but do you understand how they see it? Do you understand their perspective and their experience? And that's where you start to ask questions. And especially open-ended questions, especially questions that are about their emotions, and just let them fill in the blanks. You know, so things like, oh, my God, that must be really scary. And then just, is, 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 it must be scary, is it? And they just, they'll talk for a little bit. And they start to share their experience. And this does two important things. First of all, it's helpful for them. It's helpful for them because they feel that they're getting attention. They can tell someone cares. And that process of talking it out, which maybe no one else has asked them to do, they start to get perspective on it. Maybe they start to see and it's not always possible to solve every problem, but they might start to see ways to improve the situation. So it's helpful for them, but also for you as the person who's feeling the empathy and trying to do the compassion, it changes the, changes the dynamic. You're no longer focused on what I'm feeling, you know, what, what oh, I, I feel bad because I picked up their, their grief. Now you're focused on them and you're relating to them in this two-directional way. And you're having a conversation which uses not just the emotional part of your brain, but the logical part. And you start to have a different internal feeling. So when people practice compassion this way, what we see is the opposite of empathy. We see that the pulse comes down, the breathing rate comes down, they start to feel positive rather than negative. And rather than wanting to pull away, it brings people together. So it's helpful for both parties. This episode of the podcast is sponsored by Marquee TV. Marquee TV is an incredible streaming service that is a gateway to arts and culture. With my subscription, I've enjoyed watching some of the Royal Shakespeare Company's most acclaimed productions of recent years, including David Tennant in Richard II and Simon Russell Beale in The Tempest. I've seen multiple productions of The Ring Cycle and Thelonious Monk playing in Brussels in 1963. I've watched Alice in Wonderland at the Royal Opera House and Giselle at La Scala. Marquee TV really is the most accessible way into culture I've ever encountered and a treasure trove for any arts lover. You can try it for three months for just 99p. Yep, three months for 99p with the code HOWTO. Just visit marquee.tv and use the promo code HOWTO to dive into the world of the arts like never before. There's so much within your book about us having power to change things. So let's talk about the sensitive boost effect. Um, we're going to need to do some neuroscience, we're going to need to do some nurture and nature in order to understand that. But again, it's, it's all to do with having that agency, isn't it? Right. So there's many, many different gifts that sensitive people come with. We talked about a few of them. Empathy is one, creativity, deep thinking, innovation, uh, great attunement to your physical environment. These are all powerful strengths. I think that perhaps the most powerful gift you have as a sensitive person is what we call the boost effect. The boost effect means that you get more of a benefit out of the same things that would help anybody else. So here's an example. We all know that if a child is raised in a, a sort of safe, supportive, calm uh, home environment, they'll get better grades in the school than if they're raised in a very conflict-driven, chaotic home environment. That's true for all kids, whether you're sensitive or not. But a sensitive kid, if they're given that same safe, healthy home environment, they won't just get better grades on average in school. They might rocket to the top of their class. And we see this at all stages of life uh, across the board in study after study after study for sensitive people. So I'll give two examples uh, for teenagers with depression. This is a wonderful study that happened in the UK. Uh, the researchers went into one of the most impoverished towns in the UK, and they looked at teenagers who had uh, symptoms of depression. And of course, they were living in an environment where it's a, you know, it's a lower economic you know, kind of area, lots of uh, difficult home lives, things like that, where 
you're at high risk for depression and it's very hard to treat it when there's so much chaos in people's lives. And they gave all of these teenagers the same depression treatment program. And it's an evidence-based program that's been proven to work in other settings. Uh, and sure enough, on average, it did help the, 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 the teenagers improve their depression symptoms. But once the, the researchers gave them a sensitivity test, a personality test to determine their sensitivity, something fascinating popped out. Sure, the program helped on average, but the kids who scored as highly sensitive were the ones who not only got some benefit out of it, they tended to go on to completely overcome their depression, not just improve the symptoms. And not only that, every time the researchers would go back, you know, three months, six months, a year, however many times out they went, the teenagers were still depression-free, oftentimes if they were sensitive, long after the program had ended. So they were able to take that benefit of the program, carry it forward, and just fix that problem in their lives because of their sensitivity. And the other one I'll share is just with adults, uh, the wonderful study that involved couples who were on the brink of divorce. And they were given a relationship skills training class. And, um, you know, sure enough, once again, it helped improve it. It brought down the divorce rates on average compared to couples who didn't get the program. But when researchers assessed their sensitivity, this time, I believe, using a genetic test, they found that couples who had a sensitive person in them, even just one of the two people was sensitive, they didn't just uh, have, they had, first of all, they were much more likely to avoid divorce and keep their marriage together. So that program paid off more for them. But not only that, they actually improved the quality of their relationship. So they actually became happier with their partners rather than just staying together miserably. And that was an effect that they did not see with the less sensitive people, uh, that improvement in relationship quality. So this is the boost effect. And the powerful thing about the boost effect is you can trigger it yourself. You don't have to just be the lucky kid who got the nice upbringing. Throughout your life, you can trigger the boost effect by getting a mentor, uh, taking a, a career training class or some kind of development program, uh, starting therapy if, if you are not already in therapy, taking coaching, all kinds of things, and especially just starting to curate the relationships in your life, starting to look at which of my friends are the people who encourage me and build me up and make me think I can do more? And which of my friends are the ones who maybe make me feel torn down a little bit? And I'm going to spend less time with those friends and more time with the people who encourage and support me. And you're creating that supportive environment for yourself. And if you're a highly sensitive person, you are walking around with a rocket engine on your back. And the only thing you have to do to ignite it is to start to curate that supportive environment. I love the phrase curate it because one of the other things you talk about is actually spending more time with those the, the happy people so that you take in their energy, celebrating their successes. I mean, how wonderful. Who, who, who doesn't want to do that? And the questions are starting to come in. So that's great. Do type those in and we'll weave some in. Um, Alex says, is the opposite true of the booster effect if you do not have a supportive childhood? Um, yes and no. So generally speaking, the opposite is true, right? So sensitive people will struggle more in stressful circumstances, all else being equal. And because they have access to the boost effect, they can certainly build in things uh, to provide sources of support, even if they're going through a very stressful circumstance. But that's not easy for children to do. So you can, you can kind of overcome that struggle uh, of the kind of the opposite of the boost effect. But with children specifically, what we see, I mentioned earlier that being sensitive is, is genetic, and it is largely genetic. But there is a, um, an upbringing component to it, too, that shapes how sensitive you ultimately become. And the two do different things. Your genes kind of put you in a ballpark, right? They put you in either the, the general category of average, low, or high sensitivity. And you'll probably stay more or less within that category, you know, based on your genes, no matter what happens in your life. But there are certain circumstances that increase sensitivity and make kids more sensitive as they develop. And there are two circumstances that do it, and they're the extremes. So it happens in the very best of environments, you know, the very most supportive, most calm, most loving environments, the kids tend to become more sensitive over time because why wouldn't you? Why not soak up as much boost effect as you can? But it also happens in the most abusive and most traumatic environments. And that's also true later in life. You can slightly increase your sensitivity if you go through, uh, like refugees coming from a war-torn country will often go up slightly in sensitivity. But children especially will if they're being abused or in some other really terrible circumstance. And the reason for that is your sensitivity makes you highly alert to lots of threats. You're using that deep processing of a sensitive mind to predict, well, you know, when dad does that, 
that's when he usually gets angry afterwards. So if I see him do that, that's when I'll kind of leave the room or go hide or go outside. So it's an unfortunate reason, but people, kids will become more sensitive actually to uh, have better outcomes from their childhood if they're going through that kind of thing. And uh, with that said, the vast majority of sensitive people have a middle-of-the-road average upbringing just like most people in general. It's only a, you know, a, a smaller effect that comes from your childhood upbringing. Let's talk about what sensitivity isn't. Um, and there are a couple of questions that have come in. Someone asked, is sensitivity associated with people who are quiet? And let's, let's also use the introvert word there. And then Christian says, where does the oversensitivity spectrum end and the autism spectrum begin? Oh, I love this. I love this. Yeah. So we'll do we'll do the two separately. So in terms of being quiet or being an introvert. Um, so first off, I'm a very loud person. Like I have to watch out when I'm on podcasts and recordings because I don't I don't just like blow out the mic levels with like how loud I laugh. Um, but I am a sensitive person. It's just loud. So no, not necessarily. Uh, a lot of sensitive people are introverts. A lot are extroverts. And I think the best way to look at it is introversion is a social orientation. It's about where you get your energy from. Do you get your energy from alone time? That's an introvert. Or from time with other people being social? That's an extrovert. Sensitivity is an orientation towards your environment. So sensitive people will struggle in environments that are chaotic and overstimulating and, and loud and, and hectic, uh, but they will do really well in calm environments where they have lots of space for that, that sensitive mind to do its deep processing. And that's true whether those environments are social or not. So this is maybe the easiest way to understand it. If you think of a sensitive extrovert, there are plenty of them out there. Uh, sensitive extroverts will love their people time. They will get their energy from being around people, but they have to be very careful not to do that in overstimulating settings. So a sensitive extrovert might hate going to a huge networking event with 200 people in a conference space because it's just overstimulating, even if they love the people. Instead, they might fill up their social calendar by every single night of the week, I'm getting dinner with two or three or four friends and I rotate who it is and we have deeper, more meaningful conversations and we do that at like a quiet restaurant instead of a loud bar. So that would be a good example of a sensitive extrovert. Two different things. Autism is, is interesting. So I think autism also has this overstimulation component. Both sensitive people and people on the autism spectrum can get overstimulated easily. But it's for different reasons. And an example I like to give is sort of if you find yourself like, like uh, breathing really hard and really rapidly, it might mean you're having a heart attack or it might mean you just finished your morning jog. <laughs> you know, there's different reasons that could cause the same thing. And there is, I think, a lot of interest in potential overlap between these two traits. Uh, and to be clear, I think just by bad luck of the draw, historically, autism has been labeled as a diagnosis or a disorder. I think that there's a really strong, wonderful movement right now that says, no, this is a healthy trait and we should not consider it a disorder. Sensitivity, just by pure luck of the draw, was labeled as a healthy trait. But I don't think that either one is better than the other. I think they're both an important part of neurodiversity and they both have a valuable role to play in humanity. But the brain activity is very different. And there's been studies that looked specifically at this. And uh, there's a lot of ways in which the, the autistic brain acts different than the highly sensitive brain. Um, but probably one of the most noticeable is in terms of uh, social cues. So uh, autistic individuals have a difficult time generally, on average, uh, interpreting the social cues of neurotypical people, uh, at least if they don't have like some practice or some, some tools to help do so. Highly sensitive people, that's their first language. It's like they're fluent in social cues. They just understand instantly what someone's saying or means before the person even finishes saying it. So, and we see that at the brain level and in those areas related to social interactions. Let's talk about sensitivity and leadership because you've gone in to talk to Google and PayPal and Amazon and so on about the benefits of having sensitive leaders. What have you told them? Yeah, this is, you know, there's, there's two different... I think messages that sensitive uh, that companies and leaders need to take about uh, sensitive people. The first one is if you are leading a corporation or any kind of organization, there's some evidence out there that suggests that the sensitive workers are the people who are both the highest performers as rated rated by their managers uh, and also the most stressed out of your employees as rated by themselves. 
So there's a mismatch there where these high performers, and it makes sense they would be high performers. These are people who think things through carefully. They don't rush a decision. They're very thorough, and they're wired to be creative and innovative. You couldn't get a better uh, worker than that in, in many, many fields. So these very valuable, high-performing individuals, there's something that our companies are doing that's not serving them. It's causing them to feel extremely stressed out. So you might be causing your most important, most valued employees to burn out and want to leave faster than they otherwise would. So that's the first message for leaders to take, is we need to change the environment we give our workers if we want to retain those highly sensitive, uh, high achievers. The second thing is leaders themselves. I think there's an image that leaders need to be cold, uh, callous, uh, tough, and just willing to make uh, really fast decisions, kind of shoot from the hip. And what we know from decades of research on leadership is that that is actually a very ineffective leader. It's not just an unpopular leader. Of course, people might not like working under that kind of leader, but they also just are terrible at doing their jobs. They, they don't get the performance out of a company that other more compassionate leaders can get. And that makes sense if you think about it, that when you are able to pay attention to the emotions of people around you, understand what they really mean, think about their concerns, think about what motivates them. And sensitive people are masters at this. They have a, a, a natural ability to rally and inspire other people. Sensitive people are also driven by a sense of purpose. They themselves don't want to do a job that doesn't seem to have a bigger purpose behind it. So when they're in leadership positions, they are very careful to make sure to be spelling out to the team at all times, here's the reason we do this. This is why this matters. And that brings people people together. It makes people want to be part of that team and want to stay a little late and want to give their absolute best work because we're doing something that's important and they can see that connection. So sensitive people bring entire teams or entire organizations together united around a vision. And that's how they achieve greater things. And that kind of leader tends to be higher performing. We've seen this in study after study after study. The best leaders tend to be a little humble. They tend to be very focused on asking the input of a lot of other people before they make decisions. They don't make fast decisions if they can avoid it. They don't shoot from the hip. That's a way to make bad decisions. Instead, they ask a couple of experts, a couple of members of the team who will be doing the actual work. Maybe they call a couple friends who they trust their opinion, and they start to look at data and research, and they pull it all together and say, wow, I think this would be the rest path. And they get just better output. So that we'd all love leaders who are going to be wonderful like that. If, for us as employees and sensitive people, how can we take responsibility in making sure that the environment that we work in, the job that we work in, is the best one for us, if you like? I mean, you mentioned sense of purpose, but also just in terms of the environment and what you call job crafting. So I think one thing to remember is that um, you have a lot of uh, power as a worker and you can, you know, one, one important tip for if, if you're in an environment that's not working for you as a sensitive person is if, if it's just like small things that you could maybe, you know, figure out a solution for, great. But if it's toxic, if the entire work culture is, is just exhausting you every single day or if you're stuck working with a specific person or under a specific manager who is just a terrible fit for you, um, you can leave. We can't always leave right away, but like there is not shame at all in looking for a different job and quitting, even if you've been there, you know, six months a year, whatever it might be. Find an environment, a work environment, look at the work culture, especially, that's going to feel a little more conducive for your success. But within a job, I think for one thing, talk to your manager, talk to your boss. And you don't have to ask for a bunch of accommodations or, you know, get them on board with what being sensitive really means. You can have a very simple, very reasonable conversation that goes something like this. Um, you know, I'm fairly sensitive to my environment. And so I, I do my best work when there's no distractions and when I can just focus on one thing. What are good times during the week that I can schedule a block of time to do that? And once you, I mean, that's a reasonable ask. And any halfway decent manager is going to say, oh, yeah, we could find some time on your calendar that you can just turn off email, turn off notifications and focus on one thing because they know they'll get a better product out of it at the end. So once you have permission to do that, you've started to take control of your work environment. And you can do it in small ways, too. Everyone knows wear noise-canceling headphones, but that's, that's a Band-Aid at best. You need to start making changes to the way you work and the way you're expected to work. And those reasonable conversations can pay off. But job crafting is something that researchers have come up with uh, that is basically a way to start to build meaning into a job that might otherwise feel meaningless. And it's not a Jedi mind trick. You're not just tricking yourself into thinking your job's meaningful when it's not. You're actually creating 
meaning, meaningful work and meaningful sources of, of work into your existing job. So that happens in many ways, but it often involves going outside of your job duties and going above and beyond your job duties. Now, if you just blow off your job duties and do something different, no one's going to be happy with that. Uh, but if you're doing your actual core job duties, but you're looking at, you know, here's something I'm really interested in that's outside of my job. Maybe I'll go talk to the person who does that and see if there's anything I can be doing in my role that supports that. Or maybe this is something that our company is not doing right now that I could do to start to improve things. And you can ask permission sometimes, but oftentimes it's a permissionless thing. There's a wonderful example uh, that comes from one of the researchers that she was working at a hospital and she wanted to find the, uh, she, was, I mean, she was doing the study at a hospital. She wanted to find the workers who feel the deepest sense of meaning in their work. And the, one, the ones who did were especially there was this janitor, right? And you think of the janitor as maybe the person who might feel that their work is the least meaningful is the way you would often think of it, right? They're kind of at the bottom of the ladder. But when she talked to this guy about why he had rated his job as being so full of meaning, it wasn't just because he was cleaning the hospital. It was, for one thing, because he thought of it as, I'm making this a sanitary environment to kill germs and to help these people stay infection-free and recover. So I'm doing something that contributes directly. It's almost as if he's part of the healthcare team. I'm in charge of sanitizing this, sterilizing it for everyone's health. But he also did little other things. So he, would, he, would, he worked in like the, the brain injury and kind of coma ward. And so he would do things like uh, moving the artwork. You know, when he finished cleaning for the day, he would go and switch which paintings were in which patient's room because he thought that, you know, maybe on the off chance that these different types of stimuli, different painting every day, will help stimulate the brain more and help them move toward recovery. And he just did that on his own. He didn't ask for or need permission, and it wasn't a problem. And he would also make connections with patients' families and get to know them, and to the point that there were patients who were discharged who you know, ended up uh, corresponding with him by letters long after they were out of the hospital. So he was finding ways that he was not just cleaning a room, but making a difference in people's lives. And you can do that same thing as an information worker, an office worker. You can do that same thing as an executive or a leader of a company. The way you'll do it is different, but it's those ways of finding uh, sources of meaning that go above and beyond what you were assigned to do. Hey there, I'm Dr. Maya Shankar, and I'm a scientist who studies human behavior. Many of us have experienced a moment in our lives that changes everything, that instantly divides our life into a before and an after. On my podcast, A Slight Change of Plans, I talk to people about navigating these moments. Their stories are full of candor and hard-won wisdom. And you'll hear from scientists who teach us how we can be more resilient in the face of change. Listen on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. There are so many um, insightful vignettes within your book of individual stories of people who've made a difference in that way or their own experience. Some of them, have, I know, have come from the Sensitive Refuge uh, website but also stories it's beautiful storytelling so Carmen has a good question how can a sensitive person deal with a rude person <laughs> uh, is it wrong to say be rude back I guess that's the wrong answer right uh, <laughs> uh, no I don't mean that but I think there's a grain of truth to that so sensitive people if you have that strong sense of empathy you have a very hard time saying no to people oftentimes as a sensitive person, because you don't want to disappoint people. You don't want to let them down. You don't want to be the rude person. So sensitive people, I think a, a really a struggle for us is that we often allow people to trample over our boundaries. That can be in big ways, but can also be in small ways, like just the way someone speaks to you, which could be very rude or even verbally abusive. And that the, the most empathetic thing you can do in that circumstance is to have empathy for yourself, to have self-compassion and to be very clear about your boundaries. And there is nothing wrong with saying, look, you don't get to speak to me that way. So I'm gonna leave this conversation now. And you know, depending on the, what, what the exchange is, if it's a coworker, it's like, you know, when you're able to talk to me in a different tone, then come have a conversation with me. Or you know, we'll address this by email, or we'll address this at tomorrow's meeting, whatever it might be. But if it's a family member, if it's a friend, it might be a different conversation. If it's a stranger, very different conversation. But you are not being more uh, sensitive and warm and caring by uh, not having boundaries. And you're certainly not being more compassionate or nicer by not having more boundaries. You're actually being very cruel to yourself. So absolutely, uh, do have boundaries. Do speak up for yourself. Uh, what's the sensitive way to do that? Uh, just don't slap them. <laughs> Wise advice. Um, let's talk about bringing up children. I know that you have a, a toddler who keeps you busy. 
If you suspect that your child is sensitive or you recognise some of these traits, just give us some of the the mechanisms and the, the ways really to, to deal with that, particularly when you might have people who don't think that your child is sensitive but is perhaps just playing up and needs to be dealt with in a different way because sometimes we do have judgment coming in from either side. Yeah, absolutely, absolutely. So sensitive kids are just this magical experience. Every every kid's a magical experience to raise in a different way. I do have a two-year-old son, and uh, I'm going to be happy with however he unfolds and whether he's sensitive or not. I will say that so far, uh, I think there's a lot of signs that he might very well be a highly sensitive person. And it's a different experience raising a sensitive child. Um, remember that they deal with the same overstimulation that sensitive adults deal with, but they don't have any tools yet as a kid for how to deal with it. When a sensitive child misbehaves, when they throw a fit, it's almost always because of overstimulation. And if you can correct that, then you oftentimes will see the problem melt away. And meanwhile, any kind of disciplinary method that does not involve correcting the overstimulation is not going to fix it. They'll just keep crying or acting up or whatever it is. So gentle discipline is very important with a sensitive child. And it does not mean uh, being, uh, you know, gentle discipline is still oftentimes very authoritative. It's still... Well, we don't do that, and here's why. And you don't allow your child to get away with things. You don't allow them to throw tantrums. You don't allow them to hit other kids. It's a lot of saying no, just like any other parent would, but you're doing it in gentle terms. You're keeping a calm tone of voice. Um, you're explaining where needed, why why we're going to do something or not do something. Uh, a little while back, my son and I were at a grocery store, and he was walking. I, I had just gotten a little basket, like, you know, like I didn't have a whole cart that he could sit in. So I just had a little basket because I wasn't getting that many things. But he was walking next to me. He's a little toddler. And that was fine. Uh, but I was starting to get more things than I thought I was going to get. So I had a really heavy basket. I had like a jug of milk and something else. I'm getting kind of, and he started fussing. He wanted me to pick him up and carry him. And he was tired of walking. And I, I couldn't. I mean, it's like, unless I'm throwing my groceries out on the floor, I'm just not doing that. And he started to escalate. And you could see the tantrum starting. It was just he was about to just turn and start throwing a complete fit if I didn't pick him up. And I just kind of, as best I could with my stuff, I crouched down and said, hey, Apollo. My son's name is Apollo. Look, daddy's arms are really full right now. So I, I can't carry you because I have all this stuff. But we're about to check out. So if you can just go with me, and I, I kind of pointed toward the checkouts. So it's like, if you can go with me over there and let me check out, then I can pick you up. And I did not think this was going to work. This kid was like, you know, 18 months old at the time, 19 months old. But he looked at me, he looked at the checkout, and he goes, okay. And he just starts walking up to the checkout. I'm like, no more tears. Okay. So you can be authoritative and be gentle. It goes so far with sensitive children. Maybe there are other kids who need a stronger voice, you know, in order for the message to get through. Your sensitive child is not that kid. They already have the dial turned up. Everything you say is going to sound louder to them. It's going to sound firmer. Uh, and any criticism will hit a little harder for them because it's all turned up. They're reading more into it. So be gentle with them, but be firm and help them get the tools to avoid overstimulation. That can be things like talking through with them what it feels like to get overstimulated so that they know, oh, when you start to feel this way, that means you should take a break, you should go sit down, you should hang back a little bit. But it also means maybe talking to other parents. If you're taking your kid to a birthday party, you could say, hey, you know, he might get overstimulated. If so, just let him come sit with the adults. And, you know, just sit down quietly for a little bit. And to tell your kid the same thing, like, hey, you know, we're going to be here for two hours. Unfortunately, we can't leave early. But if you start to get tired or upset, just come over and sit with me with the adults. You can sit quietly and you'll feel better after about 10 minutes. Or if it's possible, tell them, if you want to leave early, we can leave early. Just let me know and give me about 10 minutes and we'll get out of there. And these are ways that empower your kid to start dealing with their own overstimulation and knowing how to handle it, which not only fixes the behavior problem, but then when they're 20, 30, 40 years old, they know how to deal with their own overstimulation. With the parent topic, I would say this. A lot of times the issue is not your child, it's the perceptions from other people. So memorize these words. If you think your child is a highly sensitive person, when you're talking to a teacher, a daycare provider, maybe another parent who's planning a party or something, these are the words you want to use. So so-and-so, my son, is a pretty sensitive kid. And that's something we're trying to encourage. <laughs> that changes it. the conversation. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, great. Uh, well, let's let's stay with um, teachers for a moment and, and overstimulation. And as um, I'm convinced I'm a highly sensitive person, I teach languages in a very stimulating environment. Do you have any advice? Ooh, yeah. 
Um, so there's a lot of like specific tools that we have in the book for dealing with overstimulation in different situations, both to prevent it and to deal with it when it comes up. But there's two that especially popped to mind for me. One, it comes from a, a therapist who is a highly sensitive person. And, you know, she, this was her dream to be a therapist. It works obviously very well with her sense of empathy. And then she found out she was burning out. It was just really a struggle to, in her case, it was the emotional overstimulation. You're taking on the problems of your patients all day long. You're feeling that pain with them. How do you turn that off when you come home? And she would just come home absolutely worn out and exhausted. In your case, it might be more of a physical overstimulation from the environment. But at the end of her workday, she would actually like envision like a, a, a bucket, right, or something like that, where she would take each of these emotions she had picked up and say, you know, that one actually belongs to so-and-so. I'm going to put it in that, you know. And she would just kind of like one at a time, takes like a minute or two, just think, you know, I'm feeling really stressed out. Where did that come from? I'm feeling kind of afraid right now. Where did that come from? I'm feeling so exhausted. Where did that come from? Well, that belongs to so-and-so because you're dealing with this. And just kind of visually drop it in that file folder or that bucket or whatever it was, leave that at work and walk away. It sounds so silly, this little visualization. It works really well. You can do the same thing with physical stuff. It's like, oh, okay, I feel so overwhelmed right now. And I'm like, okay, well, that's that's actually maybe because of what my boss said. That's actually maybe because I had so many kids in class today or adults I was working with, whatever it might be. You know, or that's maybe because we're short a staff person. You can start to take these little pieces of what you're feeling and just drop them in this bucket. But the other thing I just recommend for all sensitive people is have your sensitive sanctuary at home. And so that means a place where you feel relaxed. Could be your favorite armchair, could be your bedroom, could be the room you do your crafting in, right? And every day, maybe before work, maybe after work, take 20 minutes and do nothing. Just sit in that spot and do nothing. You want music on, you can have music playing, that's fine. But just let your mind process and do nothing else. And what's going to happen is, all the overstimulation, all the emotional overload, it's going to start to let your brain catch up. It'll let your brain do the processing it couldn't do during the day, and it'll work through it. And it'll start making the connections it needs to, resolving things, setting them aside. Not only will you feel better, if it's the end of your day, you'll, you'll, your overstimulation will start to come down. If it's the beginning of your day, it'll kind of give you a, a battery that gets you through the day. Not only will that happen, but you'll start to have these like aha moments. You know, you just kind of like, oh, wait, I just realized the solution to that because your brain is making those connections that sensitive people make. A bit of self-compassion goes goes a long way. Um, so P just briefly says, my two-year-old is called Jackson Apollo. Nice coincidence. Um, thank okay. you very much, P. Um, okay, so somebody asked, how do I deal with sensitivity in a relationship? How do I regulate my emotions as I feel misunderstood by my partner? Thank you. Ooh. So I don't know if this person is able to respond in real time. I'm curious if, if you feel misunderstood because they don't understand your sensitivity or like for a, a bigger or, or different reason. But I don't know if you're able to respond quickly if you're at your... Okay, well, let, let's leave then and hope that they, work, they will. And let me um, pick up on a similar um, line of question. Well, no, not similar, but um, let's pick up on this one. So Liz says, how do you support someone with depression if you're sensitive? If you need to curate your relationships, but people with difficulties also need support, even if they can't build you up in the way that you were talking about earlier. Uh, well, first off, I'm sorry you're having to deal with that, that somebody in your life is struggling with depression. It's a really hard thing to go through. And I've uh, gone through that with, with loved ones in my life, too. And you're right. You have to stand by them. You can't, you can't just cut someone out uh, that you truly love, especially not, not for the reason that they're depressed. So, so for one thing, you can care for them and provide for their needs and still have limits that you set. And this is something that happens to people in a lot of contexts. Sometimes it's you have a partner or, or a loved one who's suffering from depression or something like that. Or it might be, you know, a lot of us have an older adult uh, that we have to help care for. Um, I'm not in that position, you know, at this time, but I know a lot of people my age are. Um, and it can be really exhausting. And you can still set limits. You can still be there for them, help them with the things they need help with, but know that, you know, well, at nine o'clock at night, then this is when I'm going to kind of turn off and not be able to talk about that more or whatever the limits might be, depending on whether the person lives with you, whether it's a close friend, whether it's a parent, but set those limits. And you don't even have to tell them what they are. You don't have to be mean about it. Just so you know what the limits are. Like, okay, well, if they, if they call after nine, I'm just, I can't take the call that late. I need to be coming down from that stuff and getting ready for sleep or, or frankly, you won't be able to help them the next day. You know, it's kind of that situation like putting your own oxygen mask on first in a plane. Like you cannot help your friends get their oxygen masks on if you can't breathe. Um, so give yourself the oxygen. 
But part of it is do use those tools. Uh, overstimulation and the emotional overload we feel when you're dealing with someone who's going through something like depression, those are in many ways the same thing. It's just different forms of, of, of the same cognitive overload. So use those tools. I would use that bucket to separate out, you know, what are their feelings or what, what kind of depression or stress are you picking up from them versus what's your own. And when you're done helping them or maybe at the end of the, the night or whatever it might be, put those, like visualize putting those in, in a separate bucket or a separate box or container um, because those are that person's and you don't need to take those to bed with you or take those home with you or whatever the situation is. And then practice that compassion. When you when you start to work with a compassionate point of view, it will, I think, especially with someone's depression, where you'll have a lot of the same conversations over and over. They, you might have a conversation that seems positive, and then it might not seem any more hopeful to them an hour later or the next day. So it can still be exhausting. Uh, compassion is not a cure-all, but the more you can put yourself in a position of, of practicing compassion, uh, and you might even benefit from doing a compassion meditation each day, which will really help bring down the overload you feel and make it an easier experience. We haven't heard back from that person, but just looking at that question and also others that are coming in, I think it's to do with somebody being a sensitive person, regulating emotions by being misunderstood by people who are not quite so yeah. sensitive. And Frank, let me just pick out this. Um, I'm about one third of the way through the sensitive book at the moment. At 75 years old, it's revelatory and comforting to me to recognize so many traits in myself. I'm aware that I feel a degree of frustration, even anger with other non-sensitive people when they exhibit non-sensitive traits towards me. What strategies should one explore in dealing with this? So I think that covers a lot of people's questions, actually. Yeah, I think you're right. Yeah, absolutely. Um, you know, in a relationship, uh, there's there's no bad mix. You know, uh, a sensitive person, a highly sensitive person can be with a less sensitive person. And that can be a great combination or two highly sensitive people or two less sensitive. doesn't matter. A lot of times we see that actually where the, the more highly sensitive partner uh, and, and is attracted to and they sort of have this complementary relationship, like an opposites attract kind of thing with a less sensitive partner. That less sensitive partner might be your rock. They might be the thing that grounds you and and uh, they're just a source of calm and steadiness. And maybe the sensitive person brings a lot of the depth and excitement and energy to the relationship. Um, so they can be complementary. But yes, it does lead to some pretty deep misunderstandings. I think one thing that's important to do is to if you haven't already, is to explain to that person what sensitivity really means. And I would be watching during that conversation and after it for signs that they care that this is the explanation and that they're understanding it and they're taking it seriously. And that doesn't mean in the moment. I think a lot of, a lot of times when you explain, you know, I'm a sensitive person and here's what that means and I've been reading about the science of it and it actually comes with these strengths, but sometimes it means I have to do this and I don't think, you know, I need you to understand that. The person won't always get it right away. A lot of times it's a lot to absorb and they might not be like, you know, seem that supportive in the moment, but then they think about it for a day or two and they'll come back and say, oh, all right, yeah, sure. So give them a little space, you know, to prove themselves. But I would be watching for whether that person seems to take it seriously when you explain what sensitive really means. And uh, I would also be really clear about what you want. Like, what is it, what is it you need? You're not just telling them this so that they'll have some information. You're telling them this because there's something specific that needs to change. And it's probably a two-way thing, right? There's probably something they want you to change too, and that's fine. But the point is it's not that you're broken and have to fix something. It's that both of you have a different style, and you're going to have to figure out a way to each make a little bit of a change uh, or each, you know, maybe I'll do this for you and you do this for me. An example, so I was recently interviewed by a, a wonderful uh, podcaster. And in the middle of our interview, she realized, oh, my God, my wife is highly sensitive. And I never realized. And one of their ongoing conflicts that she mentioned is, you know, they'll go grocery shopping. And halfway through the grocery trip, her, grocery trip, her wife, who, as it turns out, is sensitive, will just need to leave. She's like, I can't be in this place anymore. It's too much going on. She'll go sit in the car. And then it's it's crazy making for both of them because, you know, the one person doesn't want the other one to leave. And then they're texting back and forth. Oh, don't forget to get this. Okay, did you mean this or that? And it's just, it's a really big point of contention, right? And what's going to work out for them in that situation is not for either partner to just change, but for both to change. So what would have to happen in that situation is when you need to leave the grocery store, I, the less sensitive partner, will be okay with that. I won't get upset. I won't think you're abandoning me. I won't, nothing else. Just, I know you have to do that and that's completely fine. And you, when you get to the car, are going to do one of two things. Either number one, either we made our grocery list before we came and I'm just going to follow that list and you're not going to text me. Or 
you're going to trust me to get the stuff at my own discretion. And then you're not going to complain later that I didn't get something. One of those two things has to happen where they can both be supportive to the other person and both get their needs met. And that's often the case. Usually with a highly sensitive and a less sensitive partner, it's going to be that the more sensitive partner either needs more emotional discussion and more validation of their emotions, when there's a, especially when there's a conflict, but also just an everyday conversation. And that might be really uncomfortable for the other partner. Or it's a case where their conflict is overstimulating and overwhelming for the sensitive person. And so it's going to be an issue of needing to uh, change your conflict style and work with potentially with a couples therapist to start to change the way you do conflict so that you're fighting in a healthy way. My favorite thing, and this is something I do in my relationships, is like we, we talk about having a timeout and we agree in advance how that's going to work. And you can either party can call for a timeout. And what it means is, it's, it's a promise you're making. You're not just getting out of the conversation. It's not a way to avoid a difficult topic. You've basically committed to each other weeks beforehand in therapy or whatever that when you call a timeout, like you'll still come back the next day and we'll talk about it, right? So it's not just going to make it go away. But when the person that says, hey, I need a timeout, the other person respects it. They don't throw one last zinger in there. They don't try to push the topic. They say, oh, okay, that makes sense. Uh, can we talk about this tomorrow? Yes, we can. Okay, or in an hour or whatever it might be. And they just both take some time apart. And this works wonders because the more sensitive person can come down from that sudden spike in emotions, that sudden overstimulation. They can come down from that and it gives them time to do their deep processing. And then you'll probably come back from that as the sensitive person uh, understanding your partner's perspective because you had the time to process and you have a sense of empathy and you'll probably come back with a compromise or a, I often am like, you know, actually that's fine. I thought I didn't want to do that, but I, actually if it's important to you, that's fine with me. It'll be a very different story the next day. So it ends up meeting both people's needs, but you both have to commit to it and follow it. Within your book, there are lots of um, examples from all around the world. Um, Alison says, how cultural is sensitivity? And I wonder within that question, whether you might talk about the, the phrase, the, the concept in Korea, nunchi, which was I thought was wonderful. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. So sensitivity is... It's, it's, it's universal. So everyone around the world has people who are more sensitive and less sensitive in, in their culture. But I think the way that it's viewed and, and regarded depends very much, it changes very much from culture to culture. Um, I want to be really clear. I don't think that there's a specific culture that like is the best for sensitive people <laughs> or the worst. I don't think that's how it works because our values are just different in different cultures. But there are a lot of cultures where um, sensitive traits are maybe valued differently. So, for example, we we have uh, one of our writers for Sensitive Refuge is, from, is a man from Brazil. Um, and he talks a lot about how this concept of, of machismo is a really big issue for him as a sensitive man down there. I mean, I thought I had it rough in the United States, uh, where, of course, you're expected to be tough and not be sensitive as a boy. But it's an even bigger cultural value down there. And there's a very specific way that you conduct yourself as a man to be macho, or to have machismo, I should say. And it was just a wildly different experience where that's a bigger struggle for him. Um, we've also heard from people who, uh, I know one, one reader who I believe was from Iran, talked about, you know, when, when they lived in Iran versus when they lived in the United States, uh, how their sensitivity was viewed differently. And it wasn't that it was accepted more in Iran. It was just that different parts of it were accepted more and different parts were dismissed more. So, yeah, there are, there are cultures that have a concept that might be more, uh, you know, sensitive friendly. So Nunchi in Korea is one of them. It's sort of a social sensitivity. Um, there's also a, a, a concept a little closer to home for, I think, a lot of you, a lot of you uh, who are in this audience. Um, so in Ireland, and my family, my ancestors are from Ireland, I'm not Irish, but there's a concept called crack. And crack is, we often think of it as just meaning pleasant conversation, having a good time. That is kind of partly what crack means. But there's also this element to it where it's about sensing the atmosphere and the mood and whatever it is that you're doing in the group is going to contribute to that mood. So it's sort of, it's sort of um, contributing either the right energy to the situation. And that's how you have good crack. You have a good time together is that everyone knows, okay, this is the vibe. I'm feeling the vibe. And this is, you know, we're going to here to, to do this and we're going to have a good time doing it. And then the topics you bring up, the, the jokes you make, everything else 
is aimed at that. It's not going to be something that you suddenly throw a barb out at someone or you introduce something that's going to kind of derail the vibe. Um, it's sort of this social sensitivity. So I think there's different words for it around the world with different versions, but it's one of the ways in which we do actually value sensitivity and probably in some cultures more than others. Yeah, that, that's great. Thank you very much for bringing bringing that closer to our shores, Andre. Um, we are just about out of time, so I'd like to say thanks very much for everybody for being here today. Um, thanks for some really wonderful questions. I just want to finish off uh, by saying, Wendy says, thank you so much. I have validation. I've been highly sensitive forever. So that's just one insight. I would like, before we say goodbye and thank you, Andre, just to say that the dedication for uh, sensitive is for anyone who is softer inside than they let on, which includes a lot of us in this audience, I think. So Andre, thank you so much for being here and for sharing your book and your ideas. Thanks for having me. This episode starred Andre Solo and was presented by Julia Wheeler. The producer was Luke Naylor Perrett and the show is made by me and Esme Bright with help from Nicole Wong. Our editor is John Doughty. If you enjoy the show, you can get even more of it and help support us by joining our membership programme, How To Plus. Subscribers get free access to every live stream event we host and an exclusive members-only podcast that includes almost everything we put on, as well as generous discounts to our live in-person events in London. Only a tiny fraction of our programmes make it onto this podcast, so if you enjoy what we do, it really is worth it. We would not have made it through the pandemic without the support of our members, and they continue to make this show possible. You can sign up on our website. Until next time, I'm Vas Christodoulou. Thanks for listening. <laughs>